The Bob Murphy Show, episode 220. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. You're in store for a fun one. This is what I thought was a very interesting interview with Ian Crossland, whom many of you know from Tim Pool's show. So Ian is frequent, what is he, a co-host? I don't know what you would call him, but he's often in the mix there on Tim's show. And he sometimes has observations that are a bit off the wall. And I thought, you know what? I like this guy. I want to get him on my show. I met Ian in person when I was recently on Tim's show. So I'll put the links, folks at bobmurphyshow.com slash 220, of course, if you missed that one. But what we do in this episode is I want to let Ian explain where he came from. He's got a very interesting background and uh, some of his thoughts on the current scene. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Ian Crossland. Well, Ian, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. What's up, dude? A lot, actually. And that's kind of what we're here to, to delve into. So I'm sure most people know you because of your role on Tim Pool's show. But I want to sort of get the backstory. I want to know where did where did this superhero, what, what's his origin story? Yeah. And so can you t- tell us, you know, start however, wherever you think is appropriate, but just kind of give us a, an idea of like, you know, wh- where were you before and how did you get into this arena? I was in uh, Ohio, Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I, I got, I, I in the early days, I kind of, my mom was really a really good, still is a really good force. Like I, she would take me like the battered women's shelter and I would, had me volunteer and mow the lawn was always like, it was like the first wave feminism, which I think to this day, I still love, which mm-hmm. is like equality. She would say, I would like, does feminism mean that women are better than men? She would say, no, it means that people are equal. We're all equal. And we had to fight for those rights. So I kind of grew up with that mentality of, you know, we're all, we're all equal, at least equal opportunity kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to help as many people as I could. So I was going to become a doctor. And then I, at some point, like seventh grade or something, I decided I'd become an actor because mm-hmm. it was easier. And then I could help maybe more people get famous and kind of spread good ideas and knowledge. And then I can tell people <laughs> as a kid, you know, it's like I could tell people what to do and I'll tell them to do good stuff. And it's kind of mm-hmm. short-sighted. Uh, then I got into acting and I went to college for acting. I acted in high school. I went to New York City to act in New York City. I got there September 5th, right, 2001, right before September 11th. Oh, wow. Okay. Buildings came down, destroyed the economy. I couldn't get a job anywhere acting. So I ended up working at Ground Zero for a few months which is pretty wild, like right at the building, the American Express building across from the pile. That was nuts. I uh, eventually left there, went to Chicago and kept doing theater and then out to LA, started doing TV and commercials. And then YouTube, 2006, I, I started kind of would sit with my girlfriend in my apartment and talk about like this book, The Four Agreements, this Toltec, book of Toltec wisdom about like, don't take anything personally, don't assume anything. And I wanted to share the information with my friends. So I started making videos uh, on MySpace and sending them to my friends. And like, you can communicate with anyone. They, they to say that people are afraid in LA, but they're really just 
that they're shallow, but they're really like afraid to to open up. And if you open up to them first, they respond and it's like your friends. You don't, there's no, this, this illusion of like fakeness is not, you know, you can break through it. And the MySpace platform was too slow. So I started uploading the videos on YouTube and then embedding them in my MySpace blogs and then sending those. Mm -hmm. And then people on YouTube started to respond. And I, I started to, as an actor, like a Hollywood actor, I was like, well, this, it became way more interesting really quick. All these people that were responding on YouTube and I realized there was a community. So I started investing in that and, and building this community on YouTube and meeting all these people. And then we started to ha have like live events where we'd go to San Francisco and have a bunch of YouTubers. Then Hollywood, it seemed like Hollywood and YouTube were kind of incongruent because they'd see my crazy YouTube videos where I like get stoned and talk about love and freedom and like rail against the Iraq war and George Bush and can, can I ask Ian, like how high production quality were it? Was this like you just in your room ranting or did you like super have graphics? Low. Okay. It, it was way low quality. It was a, like a Logitech, $30 Logitech webcam or something mm. with a $12 microphone. One of those little right, right, right. thing mics. They're still up. If you go to the CrossMac channel on YouTube and you want to look at like openness. And uh, I think that was the first video I ever did. It was called openness. It's just some goofy kid trying to, and I was like an actor, so I was still kind of like performing too. It was, it was right. very, uh, but the Hollywood, I, I just wasn't made for that business, man. It was so, there was a lot of fakeness in that, in that business and a lot of like, it's overly sexed. I got, it was very mm -hmm. sex, the sexuality was a little too much for me. I, I was more into like communication and helping people like directly. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Bill Ottman contacted me because he used to see my, watch my YouTube videos and wanted me to start up Minds. So I went out and got into uh, the back end of social media, I'd already kind of mastered the front end in as much as you could in 2007. So then I helped him build minds. And then I met Tim through bit through minds. It's kind of how I got to where I am today. Okay. So there's a lot there. If why don't we spend some time on that if you don't mind. So when you said you were working at ground zero, do you mean like the re moving rubble or you mean you happened to be in a regular office setting that was looking out at where ground zero was? I never actually moved rubble. I worked in the American Express building as a security across the street for AMAC, one of the three construction companies that was doing cleanup. Okay. And I sat in like the first, on the second floor. It was blown out. All the windows were blown out of that building, mm -hmm. in the bottom floor of the building. It was like open to the air, October, September, October. And I think it was like early October when I started there, or late September. And I, I just sat there with a cop as security for AMAC. Uh, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. 12-hour shifts, three 12-hour shifts. It's crazy. Did you ever have to do anything? My job really was to just sit there and make sure no one walked in and, and stole anything. But you had a perfect record on your watch, right? Yeah, yeah. No, there was no, no one ever messed. It was really interesting. It was very unified feeling. It was very mm -hmm. interesting how people came together in that time. Yeah, I was, yeah, so I was going to NYU as a grad student when that happened. I was living in... New Jersey, I saw the second tower actually go down, wow. you know what I mean? Like with my, you know, I saw it in real time. I was looking at it as it collapsed. My roommate actually had rubble hit him. He he had, because he worked in the financial district. And so he took the train in that day. When he got off the train, the first plane had already hit. But at that point, everyone just thought it was a freak accident. And so he was walking out. And then the second plane hit and like, and he started running. Like I said, like stuff actually hit his shoulders wow. from that. So that, yeah, we were there and you're right. It was wild. Like there were, it was, you could still smell the burning, like 
several weeks later. It could have been months. Yeah. I'm losing track of time, but I mean, it, you know, people might think, oh yeah, it was down, and then the next day they put the fire. No, it was still burning weeks later. I have the the gas. It was not a gas mask or whatever the the mask with the big pink filter things mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. I still have that, and it smells like what it smelled like at Ground Zero. I've captured that scent. It's wow. like a time capsule. It's in my mm-hmm. parents' attic. I got to bring it out here and let the guests. But it's like. It's bad. If you if you take a huge breath of it, it it hurts the lungs. Mm. Whatever was in that, I don't know if it's asbestos or what. All sorts of chemicals in that. Yeah. The other thing too was like there were guys with M16s just walking around openly. I mean, soldiers, not <laughs> not vigilantes. And you know, like that, I was like, oh, this is what a police state looks like. And of course, of course, at the time, I was like, oh, happy to to have it because they would they you know. And, and you're right, it was. I don't know if you saw him on the TV, but and I know people are probably going to get mad at me in the comments, but. Rudy Giuliani was actually not political for like 48 hours. Like he really was, you know, he was doing press conferences because he was the mayor for people who don't know. And, you know, people would ask him, well, what about this? And he would just say, yeah, I, I don't know. We're, we're looking into that. You know what I mean? Like he was not putting on a show. It really, you got the sense it was like, wow, the city just got attacked and holy cow. You know what I mean? Like it, it was, he wasn't yeah. being political for about 48 hours. Okay. So I, I would like to ask you more about the acting if that's all right. So did you, did you go to acting school? Yeah, I went to Kent State in okay. Northeast Ohio uh, for theater. I started off as a broadcast major. Mm-hmm. I, I thought like, yeah, I, I want to act, but uh, I'll get a real job just in case, mm-hmm. to fall, a real degree to fall back on. Right. So I got journalism. As a, and uh, after the first semester, I auditioned for Macbeth, and the, the director was also, she was like, why don't you tr- transfer and become a theater major? I'll be your advisor. I thought, ah, uh, there was a girl I really liked. So I was like, yeah, I will. So I did. <laughs> and I'm so glad I, I followed my my passion instead of what I thought was a good backup. I met I'm such amazing friends. I'm still in debt from it. Mm-hmm. But the people I made and the experience I had as an actor, like it built my confidence up to a point where I was actually able to get roles later. Mm-hmm. But ironically, now you're more in journalism than in acting. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. It's such a blend with with uh, internet video, right, right? Like right now, we're performing. I know how to how to face a camera. You know, you mm-hmm. want to the angles you want to maintain, the lighting, all that stuff comes in so handy. I always show my good side. You definitely uh, do. You look great right now. <laughs> I had um, Robert Anthony Peters on, and we we delved into this stuff too. So I, I, this just fascinates me. So what what is it that they do in acting school? What do they teach you? I mean, obviously, you've got to distill it down as as much as or as little as, as much as little as you want. But can you give us an idea for someone who's yeah. like, I know what it means to go and learn calculus or something or history, mm-hmm. but what does it mean to go study acting? I took the Bachelor of Arts degree, not the mm-hmm. Bachelor of Fine Arts. The BFA was more focused. They would have like dance and music and a lot more focused. So I had like voice classes movement a little bit. No, actually, I think I took one movement class. A voice class would be like we'd be like. They'd give us like pillows and we'd be laying on the ground like mm, ah, for like 30 minutes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or we'd be like looking in each other's eyes. Like you'd get a scene partner and you'd just sit there and stare and like stare into each other's eyes for 15 minutes. Like what, what does that do? Make you comfortable around people. Oh, okay. Was, a lot of it is just to make you comfortable with your body and around people and moving. Theater history was part of it that later in the degree where you'd study about like the 20s and like Dada and like kind of the the inception of these weird artistic, like way back, we uh, lots of Shakespeare. I studied lots of Shakespeare, read a lot of Shakespeare plays, broke them down into iambic pentameter and like kind of how to, how to improvise in Shakespearean, which was very interesting. 
Um, and then a lot of the degree became about just doing plays. Like I would do a play, uh, spend like three months on the play, and then I'd get three credits or something like that, I think. I did summer stock theater at one point. So over the summer, I did uh, at this place called Port House that's by Blossom Music Center in uh, Northeast Ohio and got like 12, cre six credits for it, I think. So I would actually get credits doing theater, which was very awesome. So it was like hands-on. That was like the best part of the experience really was the, the actual experience acting. Mm -hmm. And you would get like roles, you would get an opportunity to get roles that was like kind of above your pay grade as a kid, as like a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. They give you a shot. Well, it's interesting you said one of the exercises was just staring at somebody and the point was to get comfortable. Because I remember I, I was part of this event or, and I have to be a little bit vague, but they had a film crew there and they were trying to do, it was like a thing that conceivably could have been of interest to TV viewers. And so they had a camera crew going around following us. And it was like when the cameras were off, the group I was with, there were a lot of like genuine characters in this group and we were hilarious. And we were, you know what I mean? Like we had our different personality. But then when they would turn the cameras on, like, oh, let's get this. Like I and several other people just, stopped we just turned off because it was just oh there's a camera roll you know what i mean it was just weird and for people who have never had that happen it is shocking how much just someone putting a camera on and turning it on can just kill the spontaneity at least it's for amazing. some people man it's, auditioning mm -hmm. it's an art form in itself when you go in and they're like okay and go you're like what it really shouldn't be different why does it feel different right it, yeah yeah, it's like muscle memory or something. Almost like you suspend your disbelief. You, yeah, you got to act like the camera's not on, but also be totally aware of where it is, knowing that it's on. Right, right. So can I add the, the voice exercises? What is, is that so that, oh, when you're on stage, you do a different voice? Or yeah. is it, does it permanently change your voice? Yeah, I didn't, at Kent State, we didn't have much of a acting for camera classes. It was like mm -hmm. almost all theater. I had one, one class where we acted for camera and microphone. So we didn't learn how to talk on microphone, unfortunately, uh, well. And it's very different than projecting to the back of the theater. When you mm -hmm. have, they, you kind of learn like what part of your chest you want to project from. So a lot of people will speak from their upper chest and then you can kind of go lower and like come from the, the, the base, like your, your core. Uh, and then that gives you more kind of more of a vibration, vibrative resonance. If you want to hit the back of like a uh, 6,000 person theater, you want to like bounce it off the back wall, even though there's people right up in front of you. That took some time. And then as a singer, now I'm like a musical performer. Man, has it helped learning how to project and, and vibrate that lower part of my belly button. Hmm. Right okay. below the belly button area. All right. So now do you, some of those techniques that you learned in school, do you use that like now when you're podcasting? Yeah, definitely. Can you give us a specific example? Of um, well, microphone play, I guess I learned more in my twenties kind of on my own doing YouTube. I mean, talking into a microphone for YouTube is kind of its own art form because you want to, and then, and then singing on stage is another type of art form. So there's like acting for the camera. There's mm -hmm. act, there's uh, projecting on stage when there's no microphone, then there's project, then there's like singing into a microphone on stage, which is different than acting for a camera microphone. I guess to be honest, I can't tell it's so blended together right. at this point. But are there things 
let me ask you this, and you don't have to name names, obviously, especially if it's me. But like when you have when you guys have a guest come, do you sometimes notice like, oh yeah, that guy he doesn't understand like where the mic needs to be and mm-hmm. yeah, things sometimes, like that. Sometimes you get really good like pros that are that have their own show mm-hmm. and they're like they're on it. When they turn and look at Tim, they keep the mic between them and Tim. Mm-hmm. And then you turn over here, you keep the mic like that. And then you, other people will be like this, and then they're off. Right. And you want to. I noticed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the most noticeable piece of training for a microphone. L- okay, let me ask you this this one then. People who, like, the most obvious example is Alex Jones. He has, like, such an awesome radio voice. In regular life, is that what his voice sounds like, or does he yeah. turn on a radio voice? Um, yeah, I think it is. That is his voice in, in regular life, too. And is that true for all the people that we hear on the radio? You know, like, like Sirius XM, I have that in my car. And a lot of the stations, they're either somebody famous, like that's musically known, or there's someone you never heard of, but their voice is just awesome for radio. Is that their voice? Like when they're saying, Jimmy, pass me the salt, and Jimmy, pass me the salt. Yeah. For the most part, yeah, which is awesome. When you hear like a radio person <laughs> and they're, they're, when they're just talking to you normally, you're like, wow, they got a great voice. Um, some people will like, like Luke gets more, when the cameras go on, he gets more like energized for the performance I notice, And then when he, when the camera's off, he's so chill, which is, and you're mm-hmm. like, I keep expecting him to be his, like his on camera personality. I mean, everyone's kind of the same way. Like Tim's right. very si- almost silent when the camera's not on, he's just chilling, you know? So we all turn up the character kind of, we, the character's on go when you're right, on, right? but the voices are, are similar. Now for theater, it's very different. Uh, the theater voice is like, I'm almost speaking in a theater voice right now, as we've been talking about it, like my voice is kind of booming. Like you really gotta, gotta aim it and like unload the, the low frequency vibration part of your voice when you're projecting on a stage and you don't have to do that on a microphone. It's pretty cool. Hmm. Okay. Can I ask a little bit about, so you said you went out to California and that's when you started like, like doing commercials and things like that. Yeah. I got an, uh, I moved out there in with my girlfriend and then got in touch with her agent within like the first couple of weeks and got signed with the commercial talent agency. And then they started sending me out and I booked a Dr. Pepper commercial off the bat pretty quick. And then I got into the union, the SAG Screen Actors Guild mm-hmm. after that for that commercial. The commercial never aired. It was pretty crazy. And then I did like a Long John Silver commercial. I did a, an Orbit Gum commercial, which was pretty where I was like cutting the, you can find it on YouTube too. I'm I was like going to ask you, can I, if you after, if you can send me, help me find some of those. those yeah, those are both on YouTube. I'll send them, send you okay. links afterwards. And, but it was actually, I found that I wasn't very happy doing commercials. Yeah, it was good can money. Can I ask you, this fascinates me. I hope maybe three of the listeners will like this too. But how, so how does that work? You, do they audition you for a Dr. Pepper ad and then they call you back later to actually shoot it? Yeah. And like, what's yeah. the audition consist of? Like, here, take a sip of this and make it look like you enjoyed it? Like completely, yeah. That's what it was. <laughs> and for the Dr. Pepper one, it was so funny. I, I got, I was late. I drove mm-hmm. to Santa Monica from Hollywood and I was like in traffic and I got there late and I had to park far away. So I ran all the way as hard as I could to get to the audition on time. And when I got there, there was a big brick wall and I had to run all the way back and around again as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. So I got there completely. And then you got a drink of the refreshing guy. Yeah, <laughs> and they loved it. They were like, this guy's an athlete, whatever. They were like, he's the guy. Because I, I, I was like not booking. I was going out and I wasn't getting booked or called. Back. But what happens usually is they're like, we like you. 
and then you'll you'll leave. They'll be like, thank you. You don't mm-hmm. know. Right. They're just like, okay, great. Thanks. Awesome. Sometimes they'll give you direction and it's like, okay, good. That means they really want to, they're interested in me if they're giving me, asking me to do, try different things. But and then hang leave, on, and this, again, this intrigue, what, what does that mean? Like turn your elbow a little bit or what do they mean? Like how do yeah, you Yeah, they'll direction? be like, try it again. You know, give it a little more energy when you start saying, this is great. I love this uh-huh. stuff. Um, uh, try it again. Hold it up a little higher. And right. then you're like, oh, they actually give it, you know, they actually care. And then when you leave, you'll either never hear from them again or mm-hmm. your agent will call you within the next one hour to, to seven days. Or some, sometimes it can be weeks or months, mm-hmm. they say. I've never had it go that long. Although especially for feature films, a lot of times they won't call you back. But you'll get a call and they'll be like, hey, they want to see you again. And right. that's what they call the callback. Mm-hmm. And then you, they set up another meeting. You go in. Uh, good for people rather than to think of them as auditions. I learned a l- as I was going along to think of them as inter- interviews. It just kind of puts you at ease to think you're, they're interviewing you. They right. want you there. You're not right. like lucky to be there. They want you there to, and they want you to be the best. Right, right. They're hoping you're the next movie yeah, star. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a chance that they like you so much the second time that you get called back a third time. You'll get your agent will call you again and be like, they want to see you again. Sometimes a fourth, fifth, and sixth time. It's very rare in commercials that I found. Mm-hmm. And then after usually the third callback, you'd be in there and at that point with like one other guy, they'd have it down to like two guys and like two girls. And then they'd, they'd have you do it with like your the p- other people that they want to cast and they'd like, they'd mix and match and they try and find the best. Oh, because it might be, you might be interacting with somebody on the set. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's at that point, you'll actually be with the other people. Usually mm-hmm. in the early process, you're not there with, sometimes in the very first audition, you'll go in with someone and you are, you're the people they end up booking because your energy is so good mm-hmm. at the initial audition. Huh. Okay. Ballpark, how many commercials do you think you did? Uh, three. Okay. And then I did a, a TV show called Aliens in America. Uh-huh. I did the pilot for that one. And we launched it, which was an awesome, felt great. It launched and did one season on the CW network. That was pretty fun. I played like a high school kid. No lines. But uh, it was a great intro to, uh, to uh, theatrical work. I think I could have, if I was going to had maintained being an actor, I would have stopped doing commercials and started doing more TV shows. But at that point, I'd already gotten into mm-hmm. YouTube and it was more like free and could say whatever I wanted. Okay. Because I was going to, that came up when I was talking with Robert too about that. Like, is there a, how can I put it? At what point do you have to start being concerned about, oh, I don't want to take these roles, possibly commercials, because then on paper, it looks like I'm this kind of an actor. And if I want to go do this. Yeah. The, the, I had a specific memory of a Wendy's. I think I was at a Wendy's commercial audition and they said, okay, your line is, I don't care what's in it. It tastes great. And I was like, well, that's, I do care. First of all, I was like a health nut at the right, time. I'm right. like, this is disgusting that they, I'm using my body to sell this crap. So I did it and I was like, I just feel so dirty lying for a living. I'd rather be uh-huh. telling the truth for a living. Right. And uh, that was kind of a big pivotal moment for me. I think also having having been stuck as just only having a, com- a commercial agent kind of tainted my view. Cause if I'd been doing TV shows, it would have been a lot more, I don't know, rewarding to mm-hmm. play a character, to play a character like long term where you get to build the character. And right. Then- right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, Wendy's is better than Mc- McDonald's at least. So oh, definitely <laughs> dude. The front, you ever dip those fries in the frosties? <laughs> I actually have not done that. I used but to love that, that stuff. I may have to do an experiment yeah. for science. Um, <laughs> Okay, and so then you also said again. You had you said a lot there that I want to unpack in that initial statement. So you were saying there's this stereotype, perhaps not a stereotype, perhaps it's a real that the people in LA are real 
fake, but that you figured out the trick to to quickly get around those defenses or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So some people might say, well, of course they're fake. They're all a bunch of actors and actresses by definition. Is that a fair thing or is that missing the point? Someone who might um, have that, yeah, that reaction. I think that they're more afraid of being real because their job is to be fake and mm -hmm. like to project a character. And if they get caught saying the wrong thing, that they might get ostracized from the, the industry so that there's a, people are on edge about like saying too much. But I would go through and I would like say what we just said. That's all the stuff I would say to them. Like people out here aren't fake. They're afraid to communicate because mm -hmm. the industry, you know, the oppressive force of, but we can get through to each other if we just, you know, let your guard down and you be honest and speak with love to humans. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I make these, the best friends of my life, like still have some of the best friends of my life are from Los Angeles from that time in my life. And then I brought that energy to YouTube and I made some just amazing close friends through YouTube as with that same energy. Yeah. Yeah. Let me say like, so when I did Tim's show, you know, and I showed up and I'm meeting a bunch of people and I, you know, I'm nervous about doing the show and everything. And I was a little bit, has it, and you came in and I think you walked over and hugged me. I'm pretty sure. That's how it goes. <laughs> and, it, and it was like, you know, it was all. Oh. So yeah. you're, you do have a very disarming, like authenticity that, you know, someone realizes, oh, this guy's not a threat to me and I can let my guard down. So for what that's worth, it's that's big because it comes across well. Yeah, tone. It's like body language tone mm -hmm. in a way. I think that I think a lot of what things is not so much what gets said, but the way things get said is mm -hmm. a big part of communication that maybe it isn't focused on enough in our culture, which is part of why text, I find text so dangerous when people try and communicate through text. A lot of the the tone of the communication is lost. Right. And because if you're not afraid, if you say something and know that you're not afraid, like Dave Chappelle, people laugh, you know, and he he says incredibly what other people might consider offensive if they were to heard be saying, you know. Right. Yeah, I've noticed it like, or like even some like, like Bill Burr, some of his routines, he wins the audience over first by being hilarious for a half an hour. And then he says stuff that, yeah, if like, I just got up on a stage and said the same words, people would you know, be shocked, but mm -hmm. he can get away with it at that point because they know where he's coming from and that, you know, this guy's hilarious. All right. So I'm curious, since you were out there and you saw the culture, I think, do you have any thoughts on why is it that it seems like so many Hollywood celebrities embrace PC causes? And let me, th I'll throw out my possible theory. Is, is there, is, tell me if there's any validity to this. There, there might be like a certain sense of guilt, like, I really haven't worked that hard in my life. I just, and I'm a multimillionaire and world famous and I can see there's genuine problems out there. And so let me use my platform to help somehow. And they kind of maybe just don't do enough research or they don't know how and they end up, you know, saying a safe thing, but because they do feel like I really ought to be giving back somehow. Is, is there yeah. any? Yeah, I think that there's three, maybe three reasons. And you mm -hmm. just mentioned two of them. One is that, they're, they don't know enough about it. Mm -hmm. you, as an actor, you're not, your job is not to study politics and the history of totalitarianism and understanding like psychology. Unfortunately, psychology is an important part of acting in a lot of ways, but not every actor gets it. They're just beautiful. Especially unless they, on camera, they just hire, a lot of times they'll hire beautiful people rather than talented people, which is kind of sucks. You happen to be both, so it's... You, know, you <laughs> happen to have it all, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Secondly, I think there's a guilt attached with acting where like mm -hmm. uh, my job is the easiest, most dumb, like dumb career and I'm getting paid literally like SAG is like $1,200 $1, for eight hours of work. 
mm-hmm. and then that's just for the day rate. And then if I'll get residuals, make another 20 grand over the next six months every time it air, like mad. And that's for like the minimum. People make like $6 million for three weeks of work. It's so, so there's that guilt and they want to give back. And, but the thing I noticed the most is that actors tend to, and this is from having gone through this, this career and they're, 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 low self-esteem this is a generalization low self-esteem and they they like stick they bind together in groups they love cliques and they want to like find safety in numbers because they they have low they're afraid of being made fun of for whatever mm-hmm. you know psychological and um i also had that growing up i know i was able to kind of like humiliate myself and break out of that mold and and but a lot of actors want to heal the collective you know it's about more about the collective than about taking care of themselves first and, and, and weathering the criticism alone. So they're all out there trying to fix everything else and want to socialism is the answer. If we legislate it, then it'll fix it kind of mentality. Okay. Well, you, you actually sort of got in the same zip code as another thought I had a while ago was I wondered if the people we see as like the ones who break through and are the, the leaders in their various fields so yes, obviously they got to be talented and everything, but is it partly because they had more of a drive than everybody else, you know, whether it's sports or music or, you know, being on the screen and other things equal, the kind of person that's going to really push, like maybe they got something they're trying to prove to the world or something, or, you know, maybe like, in other words, a lot of times you'll hear stories like, oh, so-and-so is, you know, a world famous singer now and she's a sex symbol, but in high school, she was a plain Jane. Mm-hmm. And that actually doesn't surprise me. Because I would think, yeah, oh, right, that's the kind of person that is going to say, oh, yeah, like, you know, Jimmy doesn't want to go to the prom with me. Well, let me go become yeah, world oh, famous. Yeah. yeah. A, a big part of why I pushed it so hard is because I wanted to be popular. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. very popular in elementary school and middle school. I wasn't very good at sports, and they, but I was put on the team anyway by my mom. So I would make the team lose when I would strike out every time, and the kids started to hate me. And it was like, I just want to show them that I'm good. I want to mm-hmm. convince people that I'm, I'm worth it, worthy or worthy. Or, and so I'd try to make them laugh and do theater. And then I realized, okay, this is effective. And mm-hmm. people actually like me. And now I, I think I can make people's lives better this way. But I was like, I'm going to prove to them that I am awesome and that they should have the whole time known that I was awesome was kind of like the driving force right, of why I right. kept pushing. Now I want to help people. Right. I want to sustain our species with graphene and things. I mean, I don't even care so much about the ego anymore. I'm still, there's this balance. You know, you want to use your ego and your, your Bob Murphy body to like project the Bob Murphy subscribers so that you can send the information to them. But at the same time, you want to create systems that can exist without Bob Murphy, at least. And I'm just said you instead of me, but like, I was going to say, if that's what's yeah, been driving you this whole time, that's this the lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the Bob Murphy, you know, the Bob Murphy, <laughs> Bob Murphy mentality. How many actors in Hollywood have that same thought? Cause it's, uh, that's, I didn't realize <laughs> most, most of them, most of them do. Okay. Yeah. So Okay, that, that yeah, that does dovetail then with what I was thinking. Like it, another example is Michael Jordan. I don't know if this is he when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he had his high school coach there, and the story goes that his his high school coach cut him, and it turns out that's actually not true. I went and dug into that. It's that Jordan, I think, as a freshman, didn't make the varsity team. He only made the JV team, and he was so mad at that guy that it was like, oh yeah, well I'm gonna go. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I used to have dreams about giving an Oscar speech where I'd be like thanking my geometry teacher from high school. And uh, it changed a little. I remember, too, I had a bit like a nervous breakdown in like 2009 uh, as I was coming out of that industry 
because I, my whole life I'd geared myself towards being an actor. And when it started to see that it wasn't right for me, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm falling apart. The pendulum had swung so far in the other direction from ego. Mm -hmm. I'd been obsessed with Ian Crossland and the character and projecting this, this creature to the world. And then it had swung back. I had like this weird spiritual kind of evolution where I was like, no ego. I'm nothing. I'm what am I? I'm it's about the message, not the, the body. And, but that was also bad because then no one cared who I was anymore. Like if you don't embrace your, your personality and your, your frontal lobe ego. So mm -hmm. it's like, there's this balance. It's constantly shifting. You want to utilize your name and your face and your body, but also it's utilize the ideas, you know, make it about the ideas. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said something. I'm going to botch the quote, but it was, it was something like that, that trade-off between like humility or something, but also not being like falsely humble. And it was something like, if you do something amazing, you can appreciate, like you, like you, you can appreciate and then realize that, oh yes, this is an amazing thing I just produced or created, but that it's not important to you that you were the one who made it. Like, you're just glad this thing exists now, but you yeah. don't need to denigrate, you know, its yeah. quality because, oh, I made it. So it's not that big a deal. Like you can say, no, this thing is impressive, but yeah, it's not I important to you that you made it. Something right. like that. I get that with songs because I write songs as well. Mm -hmm. And so I get that with, uh, sometimes I'll be playing a song and, that I wrote and I'll forget. It doesn't have anything to do with me and write, having written. I'll just be playing it and it'll be so good. I'll be like, this song is so awesome. And I'll be smiling and like just feeling joy from hearing it and feeling it. And then it'll like dawn on me and I'll remember like, I made this. And I'm like, oh, you know, don't obsess over right. that. Well, I, I suppose what's related to that is a lot of, creative people will say like when they're really in the zone they don't feel like they're doing it like they you know if they're spiritual they think they're channeling like something's just going through them and so like they sort mm -hmm. of get their ego out of the way and we can sort of explain it like you're not worried you're going to screw it up if you don't think you're doing it like you're just kind of a conduit so yeah. i don't know if that psychologically explains that process definitely i think about um uh, communication a lot like that too i used to be like oh if i go up on stage and tell people to be good to each other that's me being egotistical you know but then i realized if I don't do that, that's me being egotistical. If I let my ego hold me back mm -hmm. from being my best, then that's egotistical. So sometimes you got to stand in front of a crowd and, and preach. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and it's not about the ego. That's just who you are. We're, we're kind of built to do that. Right. And I've lately, I've gotten more uh, comfortable with saying things that I think are truisms. Like, everybody knows this stuff. And number one, actually, they don't, I'm realizing, like, <laughs> as recent events have uncovered a lot of things that I just assumed everybody, like, we all had the same value system. I was like, no, that's just not true. But also, too, is there's people who are quite confidently saying stuff that's crazy, both, you know, morally or economically or whatever, as far as my, you know, areas of concern. And so to at least offer a counterpoint, yeah, you know, you, you have to speak up yourself. I do that on the IRL show. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'll be like, oh, here we go. Some, I have to say this now. And I'll say something and everybody will be like, no, no, you moron. And the chat will go nuts. I'm like, I know I had to say it. It's not, I had to let go of my ego and allow it. I'm glad you walked into that, Ian, because I, the way I, I jotted down the note to myself was minority report. Because that's when I'm trying to put my finger on what is it that you're, you do on that show. And, and so what I mean for people who don't, of course, that's an allusion to the, the, Tom Cruise movie, but right. It's Tom Cruise. Yeah. Basically yeah. any movie, if I can't think of it, chances are Tom Cruise is in it. Um, and so yeah. it's 
what I mean by that is it, it does seem, and so obviously correct me or, or clarify this if you think I don't have it quite right. What I've seen you doing at least lately, and maybe, maybe you've been doing it all along, and I'm just putting my finger on it now, is especially like if Tim and the guest are like high five and yeah, and they're going along with something that, you know, is red meat for the, the crowd, but you are concerned that, wait a minute, you guys are missing something important or, or let's be careful here. We're, we're, in dang, we're in thin ice. And then you will say something that, you know, may be a buzzkill to some of the viewers, but you think it's important to like, hey, let's not forget this important principle. Yep. Very much the mm-hmm. other day, Jack Murphy and, and Tim were saying, Jack said, men are stronger than women. And I was like, can't let it sit. Not all men are always stronger than all women. Be careful how we phrase it. And they're like, oh, that's not God, you moron. Of course, the strongest man's always stronger than the strongest woman. I'm like, always is not quite the right word. Very, very most likely <laughs> possible. 99.9 is not always. And they're like, ah, the crowd's like, you moron. <laughs> you know. But I mean, and I suppose like you were saying, your the the background with your mom taking you to the shelters and it's like you probably saw a lot of strong and not necessarily like they could bench press, but like physically or sorry, uh psychically strong women and stuff too. So Yeah. Or even I'm talking physical, I've never seen a woman that's physically the strongest human on earth, but that doesn't mean that it will never happen. And and some people may argue that it can never happen, but I think that's an extreme argument. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I don't know what's to come. I see huge ripped female body built. You know, I, the way that we're, our species is evolving, I can't imagine that it would be safe to say that it will always be a certain way. And people think that I'm insane. I'm breaking it down too much. And like, mm-hmm. maybe I am, but you know, that's what I think is it, the balance. It's important to, to keep an open mind. Another recent one that I, my wife and I said, we were like, we were cracking up days afterwards was, and so, and I want to add part of what I'm asking this is like, do you know sometimes that this is, it's going to be funny when you, when you sometimes take these positions is you guys somehow were talking about cannibalism and you were saying something like, well, I mean, if you just ate a guy one time, I would yeah. call you a cannibal, you know, like right. if I stop playing soccer, I'm not a soccer player anymore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I just, so do you know that that was funny? Um, that one, no, that's the great <laughs> thing about friends is like, sometimes like when I was like, like Reza's like, oh, come on, I did it one time. Like I, I was just like getting into Reza's, just being Reza for a moment, but they all laughed and it's like, ah, oh, it's nice. For, when, like, can you explain the bag just for people who don't even know what we're talking yeah, about? What's, Reza what are you guys Aslan's talking a re- about? He's a reporter. I don't know much about him, but mm-hmm. he went to like this cannibal tribe and did like a documentary with this tribe. And they were like kind of coerced or kind of like giving him like uh, peer pressure and like, hey, eat some of this, eat some of this brain or something. He was like, uh, uh, okay. So he took a piece and ate it. And they're like, ah, yeah, you ate the brain. And he's like, uh, oh, uh, oh, and was all like kind of sickened by it. And they're like, oh, and then like he felt threatened and like he was gonna get hurt. So he like ran and like left the tribe. Wait, wait, was it like on a, a beach that that happened? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I've seen that YouTube. video. I I didn't remember what the guy's name was. Okay. That's it. And ever since the he's got this stigma and like they talk about it on the show from time to time is pretty funny, I think, but you know. Eh, good point. You know, I'm not a soccer player anymore. I stopped playing. So I'm not a cannibal anymore. I stopped eating it. <laughs> so like I said, the number one, that was hilarious. But also, too, is I think that's a good example of what we're talking about where like everyone just wants to rip on the guy and you're like, well, hey, you know, like you're almost like a defense attorney. Like I was, well, you know, we may convict him, but let's at least make sure we're fair here. Yes. And- <laughs> yes. Let's be balanced for the show. You know, we want to give a balanced, <laughs> balanced viewpoint of what we're talking about. So on a, a more 
serious or important note. I've also noticed recently that you were, I don't remember the, the context or the exact words, but it was, it seemed like, you know, the conversation was sort of dismissing large groups of Americans as, you know, the enemy or the other. And, and you were just very concerned about, you know, well, their humanity, everyone's capable of redemption, like themes like that. So, so yeah, that's a big part of my, my life. Mm-hmm. My, my, I don't know what the word is. My ethos is redemption and the, the, the hero journey. You know, I love the hero's journey where someone fails and then they become a demon and then they come back and realize their their ways and they become good and like a paladin. I don't know if you ever played Final Fantasy 2, Cecil, the main character. There's epic stories of like failure and then, and re, I don't know what the word is, but recombination or what, but the comeback. Mm-hmm. I love the come, And I know people, I, I experienced it personally. I went through hell and now I'm back. Like, uh, I know people can do it mm-hmm. and I want to help. I want to help people. I used to want to help pull people out of the muck but that can get exhausting and they'll pull you down if you do. So I kind of want to, I want to give people the tools to help themselves. And also people are kind of like brainwashable. If you tell someone you're a failure, they're going to fail more. If you tell them you're good at what you do, they get better at what they're doing, especially little kids. You see the little mm-hmm. kids the most. People are like big kids. Mm-hmm. So I, I try and go that route of empowering people. And I've seen people that were my enemy become my friend so many times that why that's why I do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I'm Christian. And so obviously they're like, you know, Saul, you know, on the road to Damascus becomes Paul and, you know, wrote huge portions of the new Testament. You know I mean? So for Christians of all people should know that, you know, you should always have the hope out and not, you know, be gloating and hoping your enemies, you know, get, get what's coming, even though, or, or they do get what's coming, but God, you know, has a, something much, much more uh, beautiful than what you're thinking of in the beginning. But even, you know, at a secular level, it's more efficient for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Like, like it'd be good if you didn't have to, you know, wipe out and smite your enemies. You know what I mean? If you could convert them to be your friends, then... Definitely. And especially if what, you know, it, it seems too, is what's particularly ill-advised for those of us who embrace right now what is not a very popular ideology or, you know, viewpoint... Uh, you know, like the the free market libertarian type community that, you know, w- what we believe in is not very popular. And so, you know, we clearly, whatever other strategies people want to embrace, we have to be very inviting and persuasive and, you know, welcoming other people to come. So it doesn't mean you have, you lower your standards and water them down. So everybody's your buddy, but it does, you know, there there is a way to, you know, to not just tell everyone how stupid they are and, and evil. That, yeah. that that's not very effective at getting them to change their mind. Right. Of course, inspiration, I think, is way, way more effective than downgrading uh, or denigrating someone. I th- the earth is so small. If you, it just, uh, if you can zoom out and look at it, we're, we're all kind of the same or very, very similar humans. We all, it's, the language barrier is a little annoying. So I'd love to see like a global language. English is getting there. It's very close because of the entertainment industry, movie, TVs, radio. And but I also acknowledge like the vicious wild animal that is human and the danger of like letting yourself be vulnerable in front of a crowd of people. You got to protect yourself and, you know, take care of yourself first. It's very important. It's, it's a balance. I, I tried to help people like just without thought, without protection. Like I tried to like be totally vulnerable and I just found they, 
people would rip me apart. Like if I if I did a, a a forward bend and I was like touching my toes in front of some guy, just maybe be like, "Boy, you better get your ass up!" Like, whoa, I didn't expect him to say that to me. Some random guy. Hey, hang on, are you are you being metaphorical or you mean literally? No, that actually happened to me in L.A. one time. I, I, a fr- guy came over to my friend's house and I just met him, and I was like relaxing, like stretching in the living room and like bending, doing toe touches, and he like he got really aggressive with me all of a sudden. Like it was like this alpha dominant thing in our genetic. I thought, okay, this is, I can't be vulnerable can, all the time. Can I ask, did he think you were being... Probably thought I was sug- showing off or something. Suggestive or something? I don't know. Okay. I never, it's hard to tell sometimes, but uh, whatever happened, I, uh, it was very dangerous right, for I'll, a I'll say it bluntly. Like, were, was your butt in front of his face? And no, you no, no. I was uh, <laughs> just trying eight to feet away, bending down. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't in his space or anything. Okay. But it bothered him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Something to do with his past. Maybe he was abused as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, monkeys tend to do what monkey. What happens to the monkeys? If you beat a kid, the kid might be very aggressive when he's an adult. Mm-hmm. And defense and protection is super important. I still believe people are are redeemable and want mm-hmm. communication. And and if you give them better options, that they'll choose communication over destruction. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you can just leave yourself open to attack at all times. Definitely. So there is a, and I've heard too, uh, like people who are in the, let's call it liberty, liberty movement for lack of a better term. And a lot of people are talking about burnout, you know, people who've been doing stuff, activism, let's call it for 20 plus years. And then just saying, you know, I just had to, I had to pull back and just do some normal, you know, cause I would, I was just you know, spread too thin and it was, it was just too psychologically taxing. So there, there is that trade off between, you know, trying to help the world or save the world, but also, you know, taking care of yourself, as you've been saying, or protecting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And finding safety in numbers, you know, it's a big part of working with Tim Cast is cool. Cause like I could ha- choose to try and do this alone if I wanted to, but it's, you know, it's better to, not that I'm hiding behind Tim, you know, I, I work for, I, I'm supporting Tim Cast, but it's, 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 I was trying to do it uh, be the front center all the time. And it was just like, man, you get attacked. Like that is a target. So it's, it's better to kind of support a unit of people. Like the founding fathers knew that, Mm -hmm. you know, no, no one can do it alone. So what do you, what do you mean when you say, do you mean like before you joined with Tim, you were just doing like your YouTube videos and in the comments you were getting ripped apart? Is that, is that what you mean? Or do you mean something else? Or like, I mean, literally you can't see behind you. You know, that's one way to look at it. But it wasn't like I felt like I was going to get jumped or anything. It was it was just, yeah, you know, you can only see so much and do so much as a singular individual. Mm-hmm. This is kind of meandering thoughts right now. But I was like so against the cult group mentality for a while. I hated clicks. I hated seeing kids get left out of groups. I was left out of groups for a while. And it was like, man, I can't stand it. Like, But now you find that like I tried to bring everyone in and like, but then you get I hate to say this, but some people are smarter than other people. And it's not, it's not like meant to be an insult, but you don't want to surround yourself with like really, really dumb, stupid people all the time as well. Like sometimes I'd get like the most popular, famous YouTuber Mm -hmm. would be my friend and some random commenter. And I would try and bring them together because I hated clicks. But what I realized was all, all the famous YouTubers wanted was to have a group of famous YouTubers and me to come be part of that group with them. And I was so resistant to it that it destroyed my career. I, I, I wouldn't play it. Like with Maker Studios, mm-hmm. uh, did you follow the, the station evolved into Maker Studios? It was like the original 
super popular YouTubers. I was working with them in, in, in uh, Venice. Then Disney bought it for a billion, uh, 2009 or something. And I had the opportunity to be like part of owner of the company and be part of the, and it was just an amazing group of super popular YouTubers. But I, I was so anti-cult mentality group think type thing that I, I pushed it away probably to my detriment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I want to bring everyone. And it's too exhausting. You have to pick and choose who you surround yourself with. Sad. It, it is sad. Maybe, maybe the neural net will change it. Maybe, maybe you'll be able to like experience everyone's experiences and make them all feel good at the same time. But that's kind of why I'm working on the Fediverse because I want to, I'd rather give people tools to, to protect and build themselves instead of try and build them. So, okay. Yeah. So why don't you, can you tell us what, what is that? The Fediverse? It's like a decentralized uh, social networking system of, of platforms. So you've got like Mastodon. Well, I don't know. I don't know what other ones are technically on the Fediverse right now, but the idea is to build what I'm building, or what my team is building. Um, really, I'm just overseeing it. They're doing the work. Uh, is like a package that you will download and install on your computer, like an application, mm -hmm. and then it will it will create a program you can load on your computer and a browser um, extension. And you'll open the program, and it'll be like a little dashboard, like a YouTube Studio dashboard, and you can upload videos onto a server that you choose. So like library, maybe you can get Amazon Web Service, maybe you have local hosting, you could pay for your own hosting, you might be able to host for other people. And then you'll upload your stuff, and then people can subscribe to you for with a monthly payment, similar to Patreon, very similar to Patreon. And then you get all the money. It's just an open source program that anyone can use. So we're cutting out the middleman of YouTube, a Patreon. There's no, nobody's going to take 20% of your monthly subscriptions. And then everyone that uses that program is going to be able, people that log in and they want to search your stuff can also search like the federated network of users, of, of creators that make stuff on it as well. And then you can highlight other people. We're talking about doing something like where if I host your content on my site or on my, my network, people can subscribe to you through my network and I'll get like a hosting fee that you can set as a creator. You'll be like, anyone that wants to host my stuff can take 1% of my monthly subscriptions. Mm -hmm. So the smart contracts with the crypto that we're using or the payments somehow will automatically split to you and to anyone that's hosting you. Because I think like piracy is such a big issue and I'm trying to find a technological solution to solve for piracy. I'm just assuming it's always going to happen. So let's make it profitable for everyone. Like if, if Paramount can be like, yeah, anyone can, can sell our movie and take 1% of the sale, they're going to sell a lot more movies mm -hmm. is the idea. You'll get like aggregators that get all these movies and then they sell them and they only make like one cent per movie and then Paramount gets $9.99. Right, right. And like you say, it's smart because... Even if they say, no, no, absolutely not, they're not going to stamp out all of what they call piracy. Right. And not so much about downloading it for free. That I don't know how to solve for, but selling it mm -hmm. and distributing it. I want to solve for that. Okay. And so you're, rather than you trying to go around, you, you said a, a bit ago, and you rehabilitating people one at a time, you're thinking now your strategy is just to give the, the tools by which they can do it themselves. Yeah, I was like one of those, one of those people that was trying to do like you were saying for 20 years doing advocacy and like, I got so burnt out. I wanted to kill myself for a while. It was just like, I was like, dude, I can't, I, I, I can't, I, 
I get why Jesus let himself die. Like he was trying to help everyone all the time. It, like that will destroy your mind because uh, people, they don't always take help. You'll try and help someone that you know you can help, but they mm -hmm. won't accept it. And that's like devastating, mm -hmm. can be devastating to the psyche. Um, so yeah, I went through that personally and now I'm, and only recently, I guess, have, have I realized the power of like empowering the individual, giving them power as opposed to trying to control them and fix right, them. Right, right, Can you tell us a bit, I imagine like there's a bunch of stuff you've read over the years that, you know, has helped this change in your thought. You, do you, does anything come to mind? I watch a lot of uh, war documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like to remind myself of the horror of war. My dad went to the Navy to get out of going to the jungle for Vietnam. Uh, his cousin got killed in Vietnam. It, it was a big part of my early life was the horror. And like, the, don't ever go to war. Never, ever, ever. I mean, it, I, I once saw a building get demolished like three blocks away in New York City. I felt it. The whole earth shook. And I try and remind myself of that, of the terror of reality. I used to watch like bangedup.com and see people get killed and things just to, just to, I don't know, to know what, what I, because I grew up in like a cushy middle America suburb with, in a glass house, you know, basically mm -hmm. like, so I, I try and remind myself of that. I also watch a lot of tactics, like battle tactics, like war, Kings and Generals, YouTube, Baz Battle, things where like I watch like strategy on the battlefield, feints, retreats, fault faking out your opponent, that kind of thing. Um... I, uh, what else? I, I love like history. I love history. I love like breaking down myth, mythology, like the, the Greeks, uh, the Jews, the, the Christian, like the ancient past, the, the Atlantis, the history of like the ancient, the end of the younger Dryas. I look at like the commentary impacts and I want, what I like to do is take the mythology and humanize it and think like, what were they really experiencing? Like Zeus told people he was a God he had lightning, so he probably had batteries. They had those Baghdad batteries. He probably had electricity and was like telling, lying to people. I'm like, they're like, oh, he's got the power of God. And he's like, yes, I do. I'm a God. Bow to me. I'm going to have sex with my children. Like, he was crazy. Um, so I like to get in the head of like, of the people that we don't know. That helps a lot. Because I think that helps me interact with people in general. Um, as for like reading stuff. I don't know. I got a, I got a hold of the creature from Jekyll Island, but I haven't read it yet. That's something I want to read. Mm -hmm. I mostly read and write fantasy stuff. Like, uh, what's a good? I did the Harry Potters. I did Dune. I love studying magic and the occult. Demonology is pretty interesting to me. Like the Goetia is kind of fascinating because I think the demons got demonized as well. Oddly enough, uh, mm -hmm. the the you know the 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 winner of conflict writes the history books. That's well known. So when you look at like the battle between Michael the Archangel and Lucifer, well, that, that was a war that Michael won. So I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe those guys had hang gliders and the, the, the plebs thought that they were wings. So that's the technology. And they were dropping like boiling oil on people. And you look at these demons and they were like kings and dukes. So I'm like, oh, they were probably real people. And Lucifer was like, hey, Michael, give the electricity to these people. And Michael's like, it's too dangerous. We know what happened in the past when everyone had a control of electricity. We can't, he's like, dude, you can't hoard this information. So Lucifer went and gave the information to all these kings and dukes. It was like, he's withholding from you. And then caused, there was this great war that Michael won and was like, they're all evil demon. Forget about them all. They were, they were, I like, I like that. Cause I think that I like the redemption. Like 
I don't believe there's any pure evil in reality. Mm-hmm. I, Though we have been told and almost brainwashed to believe that some are just pure evil, like I don't, I don't fall out for that. Okay, um, <laughs> there's a lot, lot to unpack there. Hey, folks, just a quick note: if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to BobMurphyShow.com/slash/contribute. I thank you in advance. So, is it safe to say then that you think what has been passed down to us as myth was, in at least many cases? based on historical events and that that's why studying it, you know, does shed light on the human condition, let's call it. Yeah. Well, I love that. Yeah. Big time. You ever study the, um, uh, the great flood, like the 12,800 years ago, the end of the younger Dryas, the, uh, the commentary impact in North America that apparently melted the glacial continent, like just peppered North America with, with these, I think comets is the right comet is the ones that strike asteroids. I think stay in space. Uh, melted the, the glacial continent, caused a gigantic flood over North America that d- annihilated all the megafauna, the elephants and giraffes, just smeared them into like tar. There's this layer of tar. Uh, Randall Carlson's a geologist that has studied this intrinsically, caused a huge f- global flood eastern out of the U.S. I mean, it flattened the U.S. basically, which is why we have these great plains, and then pushed all this ocean sand, the entire Atlantic Ocean, like came up onto Africa and smeared ocean sand all over the African jungle, the north, the northern forests, and now we have a, the Sahara. They find like seashells in the Sahara and stuff. And if you look at Google Maps and you zoom out, you see that the sand smear up into western Africa, mm-hmm. and you find the eye of Mauritania, which is... Atlantis. It's this like three ringed geological structure. It's the same uh, dimensions as what Plato said it was like 28 kilometers in diameter. And uh, it it checks out with the story that it was lost in a flood in mud, covered in mud. Uh, That's, that's, that's big. That's big because that makes me realize like, yo, all these problems on earth, whatever, man, we got to protect against comets. If a comet strikes the earth right now, we all die. Like a big comet hits the earth. It doesn't matter who, who won the last election. So I'm glad to see NASA is attempting to divert comets. It puts things in perspective, I think, when you study, especially if you can find out it's part of why like recording information and documenting everything is so uh, powerful and important. Like the Egyptians have hieroglyphs of them pointing at a comet. Mm-hmm. That's, some, that's, a, that's the greatest warning, I think. Volcanoes too. I think super volcanoes could be pretty nasty. I don't know if we can vent those or something. Yeah, you reminded me of uh, G.K. Chesterton. So, you know, he's a Christian apologist and he he had, again, I'm not gonna get the exact quote, but it, something like he was saying, um, skeptics of the Bible point to the fact that um, they try to discredit the Genesis account of the great flood by pointing out that all these different cultures, you know, have some story of a great flood in the past. And, you know, his, his point, though, is, well, isn't that what you would think would happen if it really did happen? <laughs> you know what I mean? That the various cultures would remember it. And so why? how does that oh, prove yeah. that, you know, in other words, the, the cynics are like, oh, yeah, these stories in the Bible, they're just recycled from other people's stuff. And, and I get like with Christmas and things and, and some of that, I understand where they're coming from. But on the, on the question of, you know, was there a great flood, like it says in the Genesis account, the fact that other cultures have their own versions of a great flood that was, you know, thousands of years ago, that prima facie just shows that, yeah, probably there really was something that happened. Yeah. And there's a lot of geological evidence of the impacts of the um, melt glass, I think is what it's called, this nuclear melt glass from the common impacts. And it's like Southern Canada, basically. You got to check out 
Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson's work on it. And it is absolutely incredible. They have some Joe, they interviewed with Joe Rogan a few times where they, I mean, Randall will bring documents, papers, studies where he goes and takes drone footage of like the rolling kind of hills in the, 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 the West, uh, American West and like the Canyon. It looks like the Grand Canyon was like carved out by the basin of the flood. Like, you know, when a river is rushing and Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the river, you see the sediment and all of a sudden it'll like break away and you'll have these like weird, that's kind of what all these rock formations look like out there. And when you go out there knowing this stuff and thinking about this stuff, man, does it look incredible. You see all these erosion lines on like the, the hills in Utah and stuff. Epic. I've only got you for about 15 more minutes if you can stay that long. Sure, yeah. Can we, um, so you had talked about the horrors of war and I think that dovetails with this last thing I want to bring up with you is so when I was there, you know, on Tim's show with you guys, the issue of secession had come up that, you know, I released a thing talking about, you know, I, I think if, if, if a state's going to go, Texas should be the first. And you were very concerned. And now that, you know, you're talking more about this stuff and I totally share your concerns. So I'd like to just, you know, flesh this out that like, Hey guys, before we just rush into rah, rah, you know, let's to see like, you know, somebody could get hurt. <laughs> and, you know, is that, a, a fair statement that you're you're concerned about, you know, let's let's be careful about, you know, just rushing into this thing that, you know, once events start unfolding, they take on a, a logic of their own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. I've never been in a foxhole with being shelled by artillery, thank God. Um I felt the earth shake when that building got demolished. That was like life-changing to feel it's so much greater than that was just a human-made explosion that I felt a controlled demolition. Uh yeah, I I don't ever want to unleash that on anyone ever. Um and and growing up in the United States, it's just uh, people are so detached it seems like from the horror of explosive warfare and like mm-hmm. what could what could go happen in an instant in an instant like how things the buildings are there and then like in an hour they're all gone. Like that's no, no. No. I, yeah, that's kind of why I induce myself with horror is because I want to experience it without experiencing it so i know how to at least what to avoid doesn't it's not necessarily a solution but at least you know what to avoid that's for sure meaning if you hear scary piano music don't say to the group i'm gonna go yeah. check out don't the run forest. into the basement yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's go in that scary house over there yeah if there's a if there's an angry man wielding a weapon don't run towards him <laughs> Unless you have to. If there's a drunk driver in front of you on the highway, slow down and let him get far away from you. <laughs> um, so, so, all right, well, why don't we put it this way then? So clearly, you know, there's a lot of angry people right now in the United States and elsewhere, but let's focus on the U.S. That, wow, erosions of our civil liberties, like we, many of us would not have thought possible 10 years, or we wouldn't have thought it could happen this quickly, put it that way. Um, and so what, what does Ian suggest people do then? Like, cause it sounds like you're, you've got major concerns about a lot of the other strategies people are throwing out there. So what, what, what do you think we should do? I think the solution is technological and, um, obviously the, the culture is super important, which is why Tim, I think Tim is like a gem of humanity because he's hilarious and he's good politics. It's good to understand them, but not to get lost in them. It's kind of a reality show. You got to build the culture. You got to be famous and have huge crowds of people behind you and willing to support you. And then you need to build incredible technology that empowers people. 
And the reason you have the, you build the culture is so you can actually get through and like tell people, Hey, the technology's built now. Here it is. And there'll, there'll be a huge group of people able to hear you. Um, the reason you understand the, the politics is so you're not completely ignorant as to what you're up against. But I think that decentralizing the internet in a, is a big part of it. S- uh, satellite internet, having like your own control of your own social media as opposed to having running it through an ISP or some centralized server, a Google server or something where you can get shut, where it's free. So like, I want to develop software that mirrors the American constitution. I think that's a good start. So like free speech, it should be immutable. There, there should be, nothing can stop you from saying whatever you want, whenever you want. Although not obviously like sedition, there's things that you can say that are illegal for sure. You can still say it. It's just going to be considered illegal. Um, if the government goes corrupt and then they start saying, Hey, saying hello is illegal now. Then, you know, Thomas Jefferson said it best, I guess at that point, the, the you gotta, you gotta protect your, that's why we have the second amendment and 3d printing guns. Like I love that technology. Giving the people the ability to create their own weapons is so important because if a government tries to take the weapons away so that it can subjugate a population. You need the population to have access to protecting itself. Um, I think the the building, Facebook's actually starting to build up the metaverse, which is like augmented reality. It's like a blend of like augmented reality, artificial intelligence, social media, and uh, finance. And Facebook just is putting like 10,000 developers behind it. They're going to build some, I would imagine, proprietary system and try and control the matrix. But I want to build out like an open source free software version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have like five, well, I have like, t- there's like nine devs working on it right now. Uh, that, that's, I think a good start, make a hit song, build some decentralized, uh, social media tech. Um, uh, I think everyone should have their own cryptocurrency, everyone like your social security number. So like, if I wanted to subscribe to your channel, I could give you $10 a month. Or if I pay you in Bob coin, I can get 10% off or something like you can mm-hmm. dictate whatever. So it creates a utility value for your token. So then you have essentially infinite amounts of money that are based off the value of the person um, or the value of the individual gives more value to the currency. I think that could help combat inflation. Um, What about, um, do you have in mind too that like is perhaps part of the reason that you have all these let's call them social problems that are feeding through political channels is that, you know, p- people have those issues of self-esteem and whatnot that, you know, you were, you noticed when you were out in LA, but certainly it's a more universal thing. So that if, if more people were d- adopting those tools that you're recommending for self-help, a lot of these other problems would, I don't want to say solve themselves, but yeah, it would be more like the root causes of some of this other stuff. Yeah. You don't have to petition the government to fix it for you. you just fix it yourself. Take control of your life. We can also do other, there's other things I, I would like to do. One is um, iron fertilization. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the technology, but you disperse iron, uh, I think it's iron oxide into the ocean and it causes the plankton to bloom. Plankton mm-hmm. eats that stuff. Then you get huge plankton blooms in the water, which then all the fish have more food. You see these huge salmon blooms. Um, so we could regrow the fish population by doing that. That we can, also uh, sucks out CO2, right? A little bit, not ex- extremely amounts, but yeah, a little bit. But, and you can also build uh, machines that can withdraw the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and deposit it onto copper palladium alloys and make graphene out of it, which we could so basically start mining the air for graphene. Um, the problem with that is 
if we build an entire civilization that does that, it's going to get to a point where we start sucking too much out of the air and start competing with the trees. So we're going to have to mediate that technology and pull just enough out that it kind of balances out with the amount we put in. Mm-hmm. And or we can homeostasis. subsidize coal-fired power plants. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's, it, that's a solution for the, the fossil fuel industry and the green energy uh, mm-hmm. industry. I think you can. I haven't seen much um, study on bringing the methane out of the the air, but we could do that. I would imagine at some point too, because carbon and hydrogen. See, the thing about uh, uh, Mars that's nice is that it's got a, bun- a bunch of iron oxide dust on the surface already. So if we can melt that ice underneath it, the iron oxide will go into the water and immediately start blooming massive amounts of plankton. Um, we also could uh, shatter coral. So they need to regrow these coral reefs and they mm-hmm. find that coral grows too slow. But if you shatter it into like a million pieces, it all grows at once and then reforms the reef really fast. So we can repair the earth pretty quick and start terraforming Mars pretty rapidly, I think. Uh, of course, I think I, the criticism I've heard is that earth, Mars doesn't have enough of a magnetosphere yet. So I'm open to ideas as to how to develop that. Elon mentioned nuking the, the poles. That might help. Uh, yeah, I think those are my top texts that I want to build on Earth right now. I mean, graphene is the beginning of like a, a revolution of materials. It's going to be so cool when we're making like carbon wire, wires that you can like pull apart and put back together magnetically, touchscreen wallpaper, um, water filtration, space elevators, you know, space catapults where you can like magnetically fire something from orbit into another orbit where you magnetically catch it and then slow it down. We'll be like sending stuff all over the solar system. I think that we can uh, fire hydrogen into the sun with an electrolaser to stop it from expanding to, so we keep feeding it so we can sustain the sun for billions of years if we need to. Well, for trillions of years probably if we need to keep it going, hopefully. So I think, I think we'll be okay long-term. Well, you've got a lot of thoughts going on there. That's, <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm glad. And so I think people catch that when they watch you on Tim's show. And that's, that's probably why I wanted to have you on. It was to, to pull some more of that out to, to get more of a, a, a background on, on where, so, so like with all these things though, I mean, that's not, where, where do you get these ideas from? I guess is what I'm getting at. Is it just oh, from watching people like interviews and things or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scientists, um, imagination, if that's a real thing, I don't know. I'm just kind of a combination of everything that came before me, but I like to piece together like, oh, if A is true and B is true, then A plus B is true. And I'll do these weird like, oh, if, if the sun is losing hydrogen and that's why it's expanding, then if we put hydrogen in it, maybe it'll stop expanding. That kind of thing. And how do you put, what's the best way to put hydrogen in the sun? And then I start asking my friends and telling them that one guy's like, an electrolaser, which is basically a hydrogen laser. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, where would we get the hydrogen? From Jupiter. We can mine the hydrogen out of Jupiter and shoot it into the sun. Oh, nice, or Saturn or whatever. Um, so commu- a combination of like logic and communication, I think, is a big thing. I want to shout out Nassim Harriman. He's a, a quantum physicist that seems to have solved, solved Einstein's field equation, like a unified field theory, uh, especially his Schwarzschild proton paper, where he, he's, uh, he's kind of calculated that the universe is of equal density. So we might be able to start pulling energy out of the vacuum as a, as a power source. I, and, um, I love like fusion. I want to kind of, I want to solve right now. They say you can't get more energy out of a system than you put into it, but I've got a feeling that there are no closed systems so that when you're, when the fusion is, it's like a rapid expansion, 
the, the, the friction from the rapid expansion is pulling energy from outside of the system into it, which is why it seems like it continuously produces heat. But I think we need to mathematically solve the ideal gas law with um, inflation to take into account inflation and the uh, friction that's caused by the inflation of the system. If someone wants to help with that, I would love to calculate that. That's like could be a Nobel Prize winning project. And if it does happen, I want you in the speech to mention that you've floated it on this show. Yeah, we'll go together. And you can bring up your geometry teacher too and, and say, hey, look where I am Mr. Struby, what's up, John? <laughs> there you are. <laughs> All right, well, that's a good spot for us to wrap up. Uh, folks, my guest has been Ian Crossland for links on some of the stuff Ian's been talking about. We'll, I'll get the specifics from him afterwards. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 220. Ian, thanks for everything you're doing and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, man. It was great to see you again. I've seen you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.